Hi, I'm Afton. And I'm Anna. And, and this, this is Grits, a podcast on the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. <laughs> we recorded this episode shortly after the murder of George Floyd because we wanted to use our platform to speak to this catalyst of a historic movement in our country. As you'll hear, we included an announcement at the beginning about our new sponsorship with the Tennessee Holler. We held on to the episode while we were figuring out the launch, and we believe that this conversation about race and racial justice is one that we need to keep having with each other, especially as girls raised in the South. Apologies for the delayed in uh, recording, and I don't know what your, what is your excuse before I give mine? I'll say some combination of learning to work from home with a full house. Oh yeah, the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Pandemic. So we can blame mm-hmm. we can blame an international pandemic and on postponing our... a wedding. Those those two things together um, are quite the combo. So. Okay. Well, I feel better. Yeah, I've been working a lot. Uh, it seems like my workload has has not decreased uh, during the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. um, but we are super excited to announce that we will hopefully mm-hmm. be uh, maintaining a routine with our recording uh, because we have been picked up by drum roll, please. The Tennessee Holler. Uh, Anna, what is the Tennessee Holler? Uh, The Tennessee Holler is a local uh, media organization that has done some really great um, journalism that's very adaptive to the digital space um, that has broken a lot of stories over the last year or so they've mm-hmm. been they've been operating yeah. um, and they have really done a good job of holding the legislators to account and of being a strong progressive voice in our state um, in the media space and so they're expanding to um, large cities across the state. The Pulitzer Prize winning portfolio is expanding to podcasts. <laughs> I always joke that they're, they're on the verge of winning a Pulitzer and then Justin Kinney always laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> so check them out, follow them. We'll put all the links in the show. Well, notes. now they'll be their Their brand will now be on, on ours. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we will be part of the, the wonderful slate of podcasts that they have in the works. We are the going to be the grandmas of the group, the, <laughs> the veterans of the podcast space with our with our prolific uh, catalog of <laughs> season one, seasons one, two, and three. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully this will give us a more um, give us more accountability and also um, a strong umbrella of of voices to be associated with. Um, that will probably be featured on our podcast. We hope that we'll have mm-hmm. the the other podcasters on ours as, as interviewees and, and the same. And uh, you'll we'll be presenting a more broad spectrum of voices, which we're really excited about because, as we know, it's been Anna, myself, and my mother. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully we'll bring in some and some more guests and you can hear, um, you know, we have a very limited perspective. I think it's fun to spend time together, um, and share what we think, but also there are a bunch of other people out there who have, um, their own unique or much smarter, much more fun than, than yes. us. So, yeah. so that's for sure. Uh, so we'll, we'll continue with the 30 minute podcast. Uh, we'll do our brief updates as, uh, presented and then dig into some content. And then once again, with your favorite, segment Grit's Gratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Anna and I are recording um, on May 31st, and I know for a lot of us, this week has been incredibly heavy. Um, 
I attended the uh, Black Lives Matter, the Solidarity Rally for George Floyd in Nashville um, last night, and Anna and I felt like it was the a pretty important moment in time for us as white women uh, to use our platform to talk about why Black Lives Matter um, and to really ask white women who um, who listen to this podcast to really lean into this conversation and to give it some thought. So. Anna and I, uh, I will talk a little bit about the rally yesterday and uh, provide some context as to what's happening. I I hope a lot of you have been following along. Um, But as someone who works in progressive politics, as well as is involved in a national network of activists, I feel like it is it is my duty and personal responsibility to to talk about uh, these issues that are related to race as well as uh, white supremacy and police brutality. So uh, George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis and um, in Nashville we've had our own legacy of young black men being killed. Daniel Hambrick, um, Jacquees Clemens, um, there's just been a long track record of a police brutality in communities of color, not only in the South, but across the country. And so uh, this week we've seen uprisings in major American cities um, in standing in solidarity with the activists and the protesters in Minneapolis um, who are responding to uh, responding to pain and compounded trauma over generations um, of, of black men being killed as well as killing of their family members. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was the rally yesterday. Uh, so I was there as a field correspondent for the Tennessee Hauler, and I heard a few of the speakers deliver some tropes that I feel are incredibly problematic, and I'm going to, Anna and I are going to unpack those on this on this podcast. The first one I heard from an elected politician was that if you are upset, and once again, this politician was speaking to a crowd of prob- upwards of thousands of people um, who are grieving the loss of their community members, um, and this politician said, if you're angry, go out and vote. And I want to stop there because that is one of the most insensitive things you could possibly say to someone, especially from a marginalized community. I am an, I am a pragmatic electoralist, but I also reckon with that electoralism for a very long time has only benefited the wealthy and the white, or the pale, stale, and middle crowd, as I like to call it. And so when you are telling someone, when you are not leaning in to what they are saying and they're upset and they're suffering and you are providing a platitude that says go vote you are asking them to buy into a system that has completely disenfranchised them for generations i i as someone who is a progressive organizer in electoral politics yes you absolutely should vote but to say that as a panacea to a group of people who Electoral politics has not benefited. It has not eradicated poverty for them. It has not brought their family members back to life. It has not delivered justice. So when you say to someone, go vote, it it it's just, it is the most, as I said, insensitive thing you could possibly say. Anna, did you have anything you wanted to add about that? Yeah, I think that... <laughs> Voting is itself a fraught issue with how hard it is to vote, 
particularly because of mass incarceration and widespread um, voter suppression and widespread voter suppression. So, um, I think particularly in communities of color that voting, um, and in, and even in the democratic side of politics of, um, the black vote, particularly black women being the bedrock and cornerstone Mm. of, of democratic victories. Um, and that, not leading to policy that or politicians that look like them politicians that look like them upper echelons of power and politicians that will stand up for them and and actually govern or lead with a platform that protects people of color and elevates them and elevates them as as the um you know true constituents and um beneficiaries of policy and I don't, I just don't see that kind of thought or consideration. And so, and it's also an institution of power. Um, of course we want more power. We want more people in power, in powerful positions, political positions that, um, care about black lives and elevate black lives. But this is all in a structure and in a system that is built on white supremacy. So there's a lot to dismantle there. And it is not the be-all, end-all. Like you said, it's not the panacea even to have progressive politicians in power because they're in a system that itself is... It's not even about them as an individual. It's more about the structure of the way our government works and the way um, leadership works that, that disadvantages and um, disenfranchises people of color. Well, especially when you look at, and I I don't want to do a deep dive into this, but municipal governments and how police departments are funded, okay, you have, you're able to vote for your mayor, you can change your mayor, but that mayor is very tethered, regardless of the election, to the police department and the Mm -hmm. chief of police that is often there, often tenured for multiple decades and has much more power than the people that you're electing. Mm -hmm. And so, well, and even, I guess, is our police officer, is our police chief elected? I don't know. See, that's something that we don't even know. So we're ignorant when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, But just note that when you're asking marginalized, when you are telling marginalized communities that all they have to do do is vote, it is just, it's it's negligent. So please stop doing that. Um, And recognize that there is vast voter suppression and that your your responsibility as as white people and as white women is to ensure that you are building constructive channels for people to vote, right? Even if, you know, I, I'm not sure what that looks like. Say you own a small business, like I'm thinking of my friend in Knoxville who owns a small jewelry business. Put voter registration forms in your, in your small business on Market Street as people pass. You know, there are ways to broaden your spectrum of what you can do, your activity, to make sure that there are ways um, that you are supporting people to vote. Um, I will say as a caveat, do not go out into African-American neighborhoods and be registering voters as white women. What you should be doing is funding organizations that do that work that are led by people of color. And I think that's Mm -hmm. also a problem we see in progressive politics is that, you know, at least I've learned is that, you know, people of color are experts in their own communities and it's not our responsibility as white folks to say, you need to register voters, right? Like, Black churches have a network of voter registration drives that are parallel to none, right? And I think Mm -hmm. it's just, it's important to reckon that, you know, we should be doing things, We, you know, for as white women, we should be talking to white women and we shouldn't be 
spending our time registering black voters and said we should be supporting organizations monetarily that do that work, that represent people of color. I think one way that makes me think of one way to examine um, this fear of your influence and, and the scope of what you can do is to just really ask yourself if your actions are paternalistic. And, you know, it the way our patriarchal society is set up and particularly in the space of um, the white savior complex (laughs) space that Mm -hmm. that a lot of progressive women gravitate towards it's really easy to see someone hurting and immediately go to a paternalistic mindset about Mm. what you can do um when you see people that have less power or or are in situations where they are um have a lot of emotional labor but it, you should be listening more than you are doing upon a community. Please listen before you do anything in the space um, to make sure that it's wanted and that you're not continuing to reinforce. Parachuting into communities. That, yeah. Yeah, 100%. So the second, the second trope I want to talk about that I that <laughs> echoed in my ears as I listened to our elected officials speak... Uh, I heard one of them say, all lives matter. <sighs> now, I'm, I'm going to pass it to Anna to help us unpack this. Um, yeah, Anna. <laughs> yeah, so there are many problems with this phrase, and I think people have different motivations for, for using it. Not, not all of them negative, but I think the reason why we should not say this and should instead say Black Lives Matter um, is that you are basically gaslighting and negating the problem that exists as to why we say Black Lives Matter. So I saw one analogy that said, you know, you we have breast cancer awareness, for example. You don't just say all cancers matter. Like, it, it, it it's because... The awareness campaign exists because there needed to be a concerted focus on a problem. And you can't treat everything at all times with equal importance without erasing the fact that the problem exists. So the reason why we say Black Lives Matter is there is evidence that many people don't believe that they do. So the reason that we don't say all lives matter is that's a nonsensical phrase that has been used to negate the very real problem that people do not value black lives. Thanks, Anna. I really, I really appreciate that. Uh, the third trope that I have been, that I've witnessed on Twitter as well as on Facebook from a lot of white women centers this idea that looting is bad. And I want to unpack that a little bit. The rioting is bad. First of all, the legacy of Martin Luther King has been whitewashed to the point where the general populace doesn't understand what a a radical he was. By the time he was assassinated, he was one of the most hated people in the United States of America. He said that a riot is the voice of the unheard, and that's not verbatim, but you, you catch my drift. Rioting is a way for people to express themselves in a way 
when the entire system is crumbling and you have no voice and you have no power. And I want to put things into perspective for you. Billionaires became an estimated $400 billion richer as a result of this pandemic. So there are corporations and the 1% that are benefiting off of a pandemic and people suffering. In contrast, white women censuring marginalized communities for looting and rioting, it is not it is not the same. It is not the same. They are yes, I understand that property is being destroyed, but black lives are being killed. And that's the piece that you really need to walk away with is that Property can be replaced. And yes, I will say I talked to my mom today and she said, well, there was a black-led, black-owned business in Minneapolis and they were upset about losing it. And, I, and yes, that is, a devastate, that is devastating, right? But looting a Target when these corporate executives are making off with $100, $100 million bonus packages as people are suffering during a pandemic, I mean, that's the perspective that I want people to take away. Do you have anything to add? I think we focus way too much on these individual stories and individual examples. And we do the same thing with the police officer. We say it's one bad apple mm. or mm. or that person was a criminal. And in this case, it was, it was justified by the police officer. And police officers don't want to think that, that you are accusing them as a as an individual of being racist or having certain biases but in reality it is a system that is set up to let police officers have full immunity from any kind of prosecution and then they're trained and told that it's okay to use force if you feel threatened at all because your life matters more mm. than mm. someone suspected of a crime and i think this we need to recenter instead of people mourning the businesses that are lost. Especially corporations. Especially corporations. Yeah, we need to recenter on the lives that are lost and how much pain you have to feel to be participating in these rallies and these riots. And it's really hard. Sure. I'm sure there's individuals that have been involved in destruction of property that want to be part of the mayhem or, 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 or just have anarchists, anger, or, anarchists. Or, or anarchists have, have motivations that, um, are not uh, the purest motivation. There are such massive systemic systems of oppression and, horrible, horrible, horrible racism that has driven the system to be the way it is and for people to lose their lives and to lose much of their lives to um, the prison system that I think when we focus on specific cases of one business in Minneapolis or it it is tragic. All of this is tragic. Like I'm mourning all of this And, and that includes the destruction, but that is because of the problem that led to the destruction. Right. It's not because of, of the destruction itself. itself. Yeah. Right. And I think especially having a conversation with my family and just how very privileged white people are responding to this is that you are, you are operating within a paradigm of privilege and comfort that you 
think stealing is bad, right? And it is not up, it is not for us to decide as privileged white people how marginalized communities express their suffering and their pain and their grieving. It is not up to us. You can observe and you can pay attention, but you should not condemn it because you don't know the first thing about being where they come from and what they, the, their generational trauma that, that has been inflicted upon them by the police, by institutional racism. And I just, I would really challenge all of you when you see these stories of looting and you revert to this law and order type response, I really challenge you to step back from that and think about what's driving What's driving that? And to also consider that we have systematically looted and stolen <gasps> and destroyed. This is pilfered land. Yeah. And we, we have and- stolen wealth from black families for generations. We, like, this country has looted black families forever. Yeah. We're on looted land. I mean, it's just like the perspective. I just, I hope all of you listening really, really dig in and introspect and really think about, you know, what is beyond the surface stories that you are reading about on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and really what is like the history and the legacy of this country and the people that we have continuously oppressed. Yeah. Just because the bank employees that deny loans and the realtors that wouldn't sell houses to people of color just because what they did was legal Mm. doesn't mean it is not the same or worse than the destruction of property now. And I think the whole law and order and the legal paradigm that we're functioning in, um, where that helps inform if you think something is right or wrong, if you legitimately think that someone selling a cigarette or or that even would be holding or a gun Floyd. in a he had park. a forged dollar $20 bill yeah. or um in a house the Ahmad Arbery in a house that maybe they weren't supposed to be in i mean whatever if you think that the potential that someone has committed a crime means that they should lose their life Without. Which you're not. Which I know a lot of you aren't actively thinking that. Like you, literally, you you think calling the cops is going to save you? These people, black men are being killed when women, white women, call cops. And I think like you really, you know, you're fearful for your Amazon package on your porch every time black men step outside. They could be killed. And that's and that's when and I don't know if you've seen and I'm sure a lot of you followed the story of that gentleman that took the video of the woman in Central Park who was censuring this black man. Uh, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I don't know if people. It's it's virtual virtue signaling uh, that fear felt by a white woman or perceived a perceived fear that you can so easily communicate that and be believed mm. whether it is true or not and that that is valid enough that someone would take action on your behalf and get in your car and go and then that gives you are 
when you make that call, you have the power to then give the police officer permission to take to kill them deadly to force. kill them. Yeah, or I mean, even even less. It doesn't even have to be all the way to murder, arrest, manhandling. You know, there. I mean, you are sanctioning state violence as a white woman. Like you, that is the space that you occupy, and you don't think and because it's so immune because we're we just don't see it a lot of us and, and the legacy is in lynching mm. almost Ugh. all of lynching is is driven by white women's virtue i'm i'm very ironically using using air quotes but it revolved around the white woman's body and the right and mm. the white woman's power to to tell a story to mm-hmm. their narrative yeah right i mean i, I just so moral of the story do not call the cops. If there is violent, if you are, there's a difference between violent force and seeing someone of color walking in your neighborhood and you feeling uncomfortable 20 yards away and calling the cops. Because people die. Men have died. So please don't be a Karen and call the cops. That's all I'm going to ask you. So we're nearing, Anna and I would then like to spend the rest of this episode talking uh, discussing what you can do in your own lives to be part of the solution rather than the problem. I think first and foremost, as a licensed social worker, I am constantly engaged in introspection and working on being anti-racist. And a few of those, one is white working on white fragility. So anytime anyone condemns an action or chastises you or calls you out, don't cry, as I have. I have done that. And be fragile. Take it in and internalize the constructive criticism to be more anti-racist. And I think I would challenge, I know white women, it's, it's uncomfortable, but guess what? Such is life. Two is that do not call your friends of color and ask them to help you walk through your anti-racism work. The burden of labor, emotional labor, cannot fall on people of color, especially during a traumatic time like this. You have got to take it upon yourself to do the reading, to to talk to white women such as myself, who you know I am in the trenches. I am I am trying to do this work every day, um, and I really appreciate a lot of my white friends for reaching out and saying, "What can I do?" So um, you know, the first step is not burdening, you know, putting the burden on people of color as you try to work through your racism and implicit biases. Um, and did you want to add? Yeah, I think also uh, along the lines of the emotional labor, I've, I've seen a lot of, I'm so nervous to say something or I, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And, and the, in the tears and the nervousness and the, and the high emotions and that, is putting people that is putting your emotional labor on other people. Um, and it really is important that we start listening, that we start, start, there are so many resources out there and people of color have already done that emotional labor Mm, and mm. they're doing it every day, but they, they have done so much work to, to, um, you know, publish podcasts, to, 
um, have really, really powerful Instagram accounts to write books, to lead lectures. Like there are so many resources out there that you can seek out and no one needs to see you crying on your Instagram story (laughs) about it, saying that you're nervous because you don't want to say the wrong thing. I, I just think that we, there needs to be, um, solidarity and support. And sure, if you want to signal that publicly to, to let the people to honestly, to put people in your world on notice that, that some of their language or their, their beliefs that this isn't a valid, um, problem. If you want to signal to them that you stand against that and to, you know, exert your own influence. Sure. That's great. But I do think it's a time for us to, to, um, work like what Afton and I are trying to do, um, by providing resources and also just saying like, it's okay. You're going to say the wrong thing. Like Afton just said, like she has put her emotional labor on other people. It's a learning process. You are going to say the wrong thing and you're going to feel really, really, really bad. And also with anti-racism work, it's not just not, well, I'm not racist or, (laughs) It, it is being act, like actively working against racism however you can. And honestly, for most of us in the South, all you have to do is it's every look day. to <laughs> look to um, your high school <laughs> classmates or your family members or not even like it, your your places of work. Like, yeah, I mean, just yeah. it, it, we we I mean, this is a, we are living in a in a society and in a deep and in a culture that has this legacy and I think it's every day you are learning and growing and you have to you have to embrace this learning attitude when it comes to it and not get defensive I mean white defensiveness and white fragility look it up they're very real um and the other thing I'd like to say is um I hear from a lot of you that it's overwhelming to look at the news and that you you don't have you're not in positions like Anna and I where in our work life we are able to do much more anti-racism work than you, than I would say you were at a maybe a corporate job for example. I will say that if you have so things you can do immediately one uh, whatever city you're in you can google the bail fund um, there's always a bail fund for people going to prison uh, or for, for jail for these for these protests. Uh, go ahead and give money and make sure that you are supporting grassroots activist organizations on the ground that are bailing people out. So you can Google it, give them money, uh, you do your part if you have a little extra uh, cushion to do so during this time. Uh, the second challenge I have, exercise I have for all of you listening is really engage in conversations with, you know, I'm I'm not saying talk to your, yes, talk to your racist Trump uncle, right? But really it's the people closer to you in your circle that aren't actively being anti-racist and are still doing a lot of damage by not being Mm -hmm. anti-racist. I mean... Yeah, I think there's a lot of people now, this is the most... um, engagement and sympathy that I've seen around like people I I haven't expected yeah yeah yeah. I think there are new eyes opened and so that's why we're kind of going through the things um 
the wormholes to be wary of as you as your eyes are open to some of these issues. So, but so that has been really, it's been really great to see the, the amount of energy behind it and honestly, very surprising. But in that, I think there is a feeling, um, especially for women of the, of the people pleaser, the people pleaser mentality or the, you know, uh, keeping everyone in harmony or just wanting everyone to get along and, um, and which is so steeped in Southern culture. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just a normal, you know, to be conflict diverse, but there has to be conflict for there to be growth. Mm. And this is a time, this is going to be a time of, that's going to be really, really hard for a lot of people. And it's going to be easier for, you as a white woman and us as white women to, to do, to really, really grapple with, um, the things that we need to examine in our life and come up with ways to be actively anti-racist in ways that you've never thought about in your life. Um, supporting black owned businesses. I mean, or spending time and energy, spending time and energy that like, for example, like I know that the organizations of color in Tennessee, like they have to fund the statewide, they have to, they have to raise money in order to do their programmatic work. How I can step in is by doing some of the administrative stuff that needs to get done, but they don't necessarily have the time to do. And like, I'm more than happy to to take that position and occupy it. Um, and ensure that I'm spending my time, energy and resources to do the labor for organizations of color, um, yeah. Who do you volunteer for? Who, what nonprofit lunches do you go to? Mm. What fundraisers do you go to? What, where do you shop? And what does their leadership look like? Yeah. What does their leadership look like? What are their constituencies look like? Are they doing the important and good work? Um, and I know that's hard to discern for people who aren't in politics, like, you know, for a lot of folks that listen to, to our podcast. So, um, I think we started this podcast wanting to, elevate, you know, organizations and and people doing good work. And so, um, if you have nothing else to say, should we head into grits gratitude? Cause I'll, okay, great. Well, I'm grateful for these, um, a few of the organizations of color doing this, this really important work. Um, the first and foremost is the equity Alliance, um, with Charlene and Tequila as co-executive directors. And they have been on the front lines of some of the most egregious state legislative agendas, um, agenda, I think in the country. Um, and I'm so grateful for their time and energy and I know it's exhausting and I just, and I, you know, in my capacity, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that they have the resources necessary to do the work. Um, more locally, Gideon's Army, uh, in Nashville is an organization on the ground. They were there to do mutual aid post tornado. Um, and they are really doing the, the bread and butter advocacy uh, for neighborhoods in North Nashville and, and some of the most um, hard hard hit communities. Um, so I'm really grateful for those organizations, and I'm grateful that my work has put me in contact with them in a way to to build uh, mutual solidarity with one another because that's the only way we're going to be able to get out of this. What are you grateful for, Anna? I'm grateful for a lot of things, but it's really hard right now to not be selfish. And I think I really have been, even in this space, like I have been um, mourning my own wedding and um, I have a birthday and we've canceled a lot of trips. And that all sounds like so trivial and and just not important. But um, 
work is really, really hard and it's really easy to fall into these patterns where you um, become so self-centered, especially when you are functioning in a in a white supremacist society. So um, I'm grateful for a conversation that Afton and I had before we started recording um, where we were really examining our work and what parts of it, um, you know, we're able at this point to say, you know, is my feeling about this and about how focused we are on excellence and on getting as much work done as possible. Is that coming from Mm. the system that we're in? Um, and just really trying to parse out like what, what's our personality, what's our work ethic, what's our character. And also how is that informed by who we are, where we're from, how we were raised and our position in society as white women. So, um, no good answers there. <laughs> um, no, no, um, you know, proclamations that we can issue on that. But like, I'm really grateful that I, that I spent last night, um, in community and today in community with people who, um, are devoted to anti-racism work and also devoted to dismantling white supremacist culture in, in our thoughts and feelings. And it is a process and it's something that is so much easier when you have people that, um, that are there to do the work with you. And, um, I'm really hopeful, even though all of this is just tiring and emotionally exhausting and, and, um, painful, and sad. Like, I'm really glad to have people in my life that I can share milestones that seem trivial, like my birthday and things like that. Um, and also have, have a space. Uh, it's not either or you can do both. We had our feet in the kiddie pool today while we, (laughs) while we talked about, uh, about this for hours. So you can do both. It's not, it doesn't, um, make your, you know, and don't feel guilty about your, the comfort and like, you know, but make sure that you're using it in a way to, to do the anti-racism yeah. work. And yeah. if you don't have people that you feel comfortable doing that with, then I think that's something worth examining. Yeah. Why, his. why don't you have people around you that you're comfortable doing that work with? So I think that's, and to pull more people into your circle and to be explicit to say, listen, I'm really trying to work on this, especially as white women coming from white women, like, like 53% of white women voted for Trump, ladies and gentlemen, like it's, it's a problem. So, um, so with that, we will, we will try to be on a reoccurring schedule. Um, we're grateful for the Tennessee holler for picking us up one day. We will someday this will lead to our makeup and hair being done before every podcast episode, which makes no sense, but I'm just going to say it out loud because it makes me really excited. We're manifesting it. We're manifesting the secreting. We're secreting the secret secreting. I don't know. Um, but thank you for listening. And once again, this is, you know, we, we felt it necessary to use our platform to, to really do a deep dive into this. So thanks for listening. And, um, please always feel free to reach out. We we're grateful for all our griddles. Um, and we're all in this together, but we, we need to do better when we know better, we do better as they say. So, all right. Until next time. Thank you to our griddles and our family at the Tennessee Holler podcast network. Be sure to check out the other podcasters in the network who are doing the Lord's work in the state of Tennessee. Find the good stuff at www.tnholler.com and be sure to subscribe and support the holler while you're there.
Follow The Holler to keep up with what's going on here in the state at The TN Holler on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow Grits at Grits Podcast. Keep it gritty. Bye.